Welcome everyone to another episode of Curator's Choice. This is your host, Ayla Anderson. And before we really get started today, I have a few things that I really wanted to share with you that I'm very excited about. So Curator's Choice has just got 1,500 downloads. What, what? So that was very exciting for me to see. It's a good milestone that I'm excited to reach. So thank you everyone who has downloaded episodes. And I also recently checked out the podcast on Spotify just to kind of see how it was looking through that app. And I saw that I have six reviews and all of them are five-star reviews, which was pretty amazing to me. And then I saw that there are actually a few reviews that people have written on Spotify about the podcast. And I wanted to share one of them with you because it really just made my day and it got me super excited and I was literally dorkily like calling everybody and telling them about this review because it made me so happy. So it's titled A Great Idea and it's by Mr. Weasel and he wrote, Ayla has hit on the one thing many museum professionals love, looking into how things are done and work at many other museums. You can skip the next AAM conference and geek out here with a remarkable variety of museums, large and small. A great idea and a very fun host. So, Mr. Weasel, I hope that you're still listening because I super appreciated this and it really, really made my day. So, okay, enough of the gushy gushy stuff. Let's get down to what today's episode is going to be. We're going to be down in Mobile, Alabama. We're going down south for this episode, a whole new state I haven't covered yet. And we're speaking with Mary Newman at the historic Oakley House Museum. And there we have two really cool paintings that we're going to talk about. I don't want to give too much away, but the man in brown hat is a really, really beautifully done painting. And the story behind it is what really makes it stand out to me at least. And it's about Africatown, which was a town that still is and was created just outside of Mobile, Alabama. And it was founded by people who were on the last known slaving voyage from Africa in the United States. It was an illegal voyage in 1860. And this town was created by those individuals after they had been freed. And then the other painting It is of Miss Octavia Walton of Pensacola, Florida, and it was painted by Thomas Sully. And we really go into the history of who was this Miss Octavia? Why was she so special? What did she have to do with the socialite elite of Mobile, Alabama? And to help us talk about that, we have Paula Lenore Webb, who actually wrote a book about her. So she's so she really knows her stuff. So we're going to talk about that history. Of course, you can always go to the website, creatorschoicepodcast.com, to see pictures from the episode, and I also share them on Instagram and Facebook, so make sure to check us out on there. Hey, and if you want to, maybe, you know, write write me a review or two if you're enjoying the podcast. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started. We'll start talking with Mary Newman, and then later on in the episode, you'll hear Paula Webb chiming in. Start off, I'll introduce myself. I'm Mary Newman. I've been the museum manager at Oakley for the past uh, four years now. Historic Oakley House Museum is one of the oldest structures that still remains in town today. Uh, Mobile itself is a old French colonial 
outpost from the 1700s, but you really don't find anything in town that's that old left today. We've been hit with hurricanes, fires, floods, you name it, we've had it. Uh, so Oakley is an 1833 home that was originally built way in the outskirts of town. We're talking like so far in the outskirts of town that when Oakley was first built, it didn't even have an address. It had the phrase in the country by its name and the Oakley directories. So Oakley was this kind of dream country home or summer home, I should say, of the original builder, a guy named James Roper. It ended up financially ruining him. It's really not a very happy tale. Um, so it's this kind of dream home of his that was supposed to be his big escape from the city because in Mobile, it really wasn't fashionable when he was around and when Octavia was around, who we'll talk about later, to be in town outside of the social season, which then was Thanksgiving to Mardi Gras. Um, it's for social reasons, of course, that's when everything's going on, but it was also for safety reasons. Mobile had crazy epidemics uh, as well as other issues, but in particular, it was the high disease rates that made people kind of want to evacuate in those summer months. How how big was it at that time? Uh, around the time the Ropers would have lived here, we had just shot up majorly a population size. Uh, so to give you guys some context here, remember I say we start off as this small French colonial outpost. Uh, we kind of switched hands couple times British, Spanish. Um, but by this point, we are firmly in American hands. Um, and the population had shot up from not too far over 1000 to around 65,000. So yeah, drastic expansion in this period. It's part of why James Roper first moved into town. So it's growing. It's not big by our standards today. But that's big back then for a you know, little port town here in the deep south. And yeah, 1830s, Mobile's booming, Roper's here. So that, that's kind of the context for why Oakley's kind of first built up. And it's part of the reason we, we pull Octavia into the story, although we'll get to that in a little more detail later, because she is the big Southern Belle of Mobile in this era. And that's why they wanted to showcase her. Roper kind of is a, a good representative for Mobile in this era. He was not originally from here. He's one of the many, many people that came to Mobile for the economic opportunities that were being offered. The rest of Alabama was really being settled during this time. Cotton was starting to become king, which was, you know, the big phrase here in Alabama at this time, King Cotton. And Roper made his money primarily from working with cotton plantation owners. He was their middleman or cotton factor selling off cotton here in town for them. So Oakley was built on the backs of that business, on the backs of the enslaved growing cotton upriver and on the backs of his own enslaved that made him money here in town as he did own about 18 enslaved at the height of his wealth, primarily for skilled artisans. So Roper does all of this and then loses all of his money in the crash of 1837, um, panic of 1837. That's why it's not the happiest of tales for him because he loses everything, loses the house itself by 1850, goes to another family. And so when you actually come to Oakley and take a tour, we kind of take you through the history, not just of James Roper. Then we, we take you through the next owners, the Irwins who lived there for the next three generations. So it's from around the 1850s to 1911 and so on and so forth. The house was privately occupied through 1955. Were there a lot of additions or is the house pretty much how it was built when he made it originally? There was a lot of renovations in part of the house, but the original structure where Roper actually lived, what is largely untouched. We still have the original wood floors. We still have a lot of 
you know, the crown molding, that kind of thing. There's some changes like the original mantel pieces have been replaced. The ones that are in there are period, but they're not the original. The chandeliers are period, but not the original. But there's been massive additions. So it was originally a Creole style home, which in Mobile, one of the main features of a Creole home that was built back then was they were elevated a lot of the time. So even one of those elevated Creole homes. Well, in the 1920s, the Coles who lived there built a downstairs. So there is an entire additional floor that was built. And one of the families also added on a back wing. And then another family dragged a Union soldier's barracks built during reconstruction into the back part of the house too. So mm-hmm. that's also back there that was not original. So it's seen a lot of changes. How, how did it become a museum? What was, what was the purpose and what was the process of that? So the last private owner is a woman named Susan Robinson Goodyear Gwen Bacon Onstad. Wow. Bit of a mouthful. Um, Mrs. Gwen, when she lived on the property, she did some digging into the house when she purchased the property because there were some discrepancies between what she was told when she purchased and what she saw when she actually moved in. She's doing renovations, and so she's literally seeing some stuff that's like not adding up in her mind. So she's the one that kind of first started rediscovering some of the history, and so she's the one that insisted that when she um, and Dr. Gwen separated that it be sold to the city and turned into a museum. So the city actually officially owns the house, but it's operated privately by the Historic Mobile Preservation Society. That's who does things like employ me, um, as well as make sure it's staffed with volunteers, actual paid staff, and they own the entirety of the collection in the house. So they're the ones that own Octavia, as well as the man in the brown hat that we'll talk about today. Is it mostly like a history of Mobile? So the the tour is a little bit of a three-part tour. So there's three major themes that we try to focus on when we take visitors through. We focus on the history of the house itself. We focus on the history of Mobile. And then we focus on the history of the items in the home. Um, Because we have it curated, not with the original pieces, because Oakley's had eight different owners. That's not even possible at this point. But we do have all these period pieces decorating the house. And so we try to incorporate pieces that we know either have an interesting story or that we can directly relate to mobile history or the owners into the tour to kind of add some dimension to the tour as well. Great. And so that leads us a little bit into uh, the items that you wanted to talk about, the artifacts that you have today. So why don't you start off with the, the man in the brown hat? Yes, yes. So the man in the brown hat is actually one of my personal favorites. It's not usually part of our main tour, partially because it's actually not in our main tour space. It is downstairs, which is generally not incorporated in our main tour space because like I mentioned earlier, it's an addition. So the man in the brown hat is an Emma Roche painting. Emma Langdon Roche was a local woman who lived in Mobile from the 1870s when she was born through 1945. She's known as a almost a bit of a Renaissance woman. She had several different kind of unique artistic endeavors that she was known for. She was a writer, she was an actual painter, an artist, as well as being very well known in the local community for her work in the mobile public library system. In particular, Ms. Rose actually was said to and known to have kept the library running through the Great Depression with her own money buying coal to keep the building heated when the city could not afford to. So she was this kind of great local philanthropist as well. I did some kind of, after meeting anthropologists from this early period, also did some local anthropology work too, which is part of what inspired some of her early writing. She's she's really kind of unique, unique character. Uh, And this is one of the the many paintings uh, that she did. And so what is the painting of? 
I mean, we we can you obviously I'll have a picture of it so people can kind of get an idea. But I'm sure that there's way more to the story than it's just in the that is just visible in the picture. Yeah. So the picture is pretty much exactly like the title sounds. It is a man in a brown hat. It starts at about his shoulders and goes up to a little above his head. Uh, it's an African American man who's an older gentleman. Uh, he's painted in pretty close detail. Uh, it's a profile of him. And we don't know who exactly who this man is. It's been theorized over the years. One of the main people it is theorized that it could be, although there is by no means proof of this. So please don't take me saying this as the being proof. Uh, one of the people it's theorized that it could be is Cujo Lewis um, or Kazula, which is his correct African name. So one of the books that Emma Roche wrote is Historic Sketches of the South. Historic Sketches of the South is her most well-known book. And this book is on the story of Africatown. So to give you guys some context here, this is a bit of a unique story and it's one that Mobile does have a bit of a history with and some national attention on. Mobile was the site of the last known slaving voyage from Africa. It was an illegal voyage that took place in 1860. It supposedly started off from a drunken bet or a steamship and a um, local family successfully smuggled in 110 Africans from the west coast of Africa, primarily in the Ghana area. These people were brought in in 1860, so five years later at the end of the Civil War, they were freed, and most of them stayed local to the local area. A large chunk of them have been identified, although of course there are some that unfortunately are not known, but about 30 of them in particular formed this community that's today known as Africatown. Africatown, it was made up originally of about 60% of these people and about 40% of people that were not from that Clotilda voyage, but friendly with the community and stayed in that same area. The people from Africatown, their descendants still, still a lot of them live there today. It's this very close-knit community. And Emma Roche, that's the main area where she kind of considered herself and did this work that she considered like anthropology work. Cujo is the one who she became closest to in this community. It's part of the reason people suspect this might be a painting of him. It does have some visual similarities because there are some pictures and lots of actual work done with Cujo Lewis, for instance, or Neil Hurston wrote a book on him as well. Barracoon, these, these two books are the most complete histories that have ever been done of a enslaved person who actually was taken honestly slaving voyage across the Atlantic from Africa. Um, so some people do suspect it might be Cujo. So just as a quick side here, I found Emma Roche's book online. I provided the link in the show notes. It's a free access archive that you can read through her book if you're interested, The Historic Sketches of the South. But there was one section that I kind of wanted to read to you guys, but it is very, very sad. It's one of the recollections that Cujo gives to Roche about being brought over from Africa. And I'm not going to lie, of course, it's really, really sad. So if you would like to hear it, I'm just going to read it to you at the very end of the episode. So that way, if you're a little bit more sensitive to this material, you don't have to hear it. Okay, let's get back. However, I will fully say Emma Roche was very well known to paint many members of the community. She was a woman kind of singular in her times that painted anyone who she thought was intrinsic to the fabric of what she saw around her. So I have, through the two museums that I work at, seen dozens of her paintings um, that she did of people that she met from around town, of all walks of life. And 
I can't say either way on who she chose to paint in this picture. I did, didn't want to share that story with you because like I said, there has been stories over the years that it could be that particular individual, but I don't Just know. out of a little bit of personal curiosity here, I'm really interested in Africa Town. So what actually happened there once, I mean, the town started, what was like their main, I mean, their main form of income? What did they do for work? What was the culture like there? Because I'm assuming, I mean, it had to have been a little bit of a melting pot. It's very varied for one. Um, gender did play a major role. Many of the women kind of as much as possible kept with many traditional African practices, which in Africa, many of the women would work in the home and as artisans, and which many of them did in the community as well. They farmed, they, um, one of the women in particular, Zuma was known to have uh, started her own business. She would make food and sell it to many of the Africans as well as others. Um, at one of the local lumber yards. She would like sell lunch every day with her and her son. Many of the men kept working, unfortunately, for the people who enslaved them for financial reasons. That was one of the main people that would hire them. Um, it was the mere lumber yard in particular where many, many of them were employed. And you said that there's quite a few of their descendants that are still in the area. Is there still technically an Africa town? Yes, there is still a thriving Africatown community. Actually, the other museum that I work at, the History Museum of Mobile, is currently building the Clotilda Museum because the Clotilda was rediscovered in 2019. It's the only slave ship that has been discovered in, or the only known slave ship that's been discovered again in U.S. waters. So we are currently building that museum in Africatown. There is a thriving community. There is a descendants association that is highly active that we are working with on that. Um, so this is a uh, there's a 60 minute special if you want to learn more about it actually um so this is a very very active community oh, that's wonderful part of the reason why i said i wanted to highlight this particular painting and emeroche in particular is because i know they have this wonderful fascinating story and Emer langdon roche did wonderful wonderful work with this community speaking of these themes that are um really interesting and i feel like not really uh widely known i mean i had never heard of any of these before you guys brought them up but they're stories that should be told so that's what we're doing here today and the next story that we want to tell is about another painting that you have in your collection yes so miss octavia walton of pensacola florida y'all are fond of those long names <laughs> That's not even her full name. You should throw in the double middles there if you want to get. And she wasn't married yet either. So she ends up with got her married name too. So Miss Octavia Walton of Pensacola, Florida is one of the, if probably, let me rephrase this, probably the most show-stopping of our paintings in our collection. While I really love the man in the brown hat, he's a very small painting, nine inches by six and a half. Whereas Miss Octavia Walton of Pensacola, Florida is 60 inches by 48 inches. If you guys can imagine the sky's scale alone. And it was also painted by one of the United States' most talented early painters, Thomas Sully. For those of you guys that are not early American arts interested people, he painted several, several influential figures in the early American landscape, including several US presidents, Andrew Jackson, for instance, the picture of the $20 bill is a lithograph of one of his paintings. Mm -hmm. So we walk up on Miss Octavia Walton of Pensacola, Florida, she, immediately catches your eye. It is a very, very impressive work. It is probably the most lifelike painting in our collection. Uh, she looks like you could reach out and touch her. And in fact, I think the only time I have ever stopped a sentence mid-tour was because one of my guests tried to reach out and touch her. So we have this painting of Miss Octavia, but we also have uh, someone who I'm not sure if you would consider yourself an expert, but I certainly would consider you an expert because you literally wrote a book on the woman. So. Give us a little bit of a history of 
who she was, why is she important, and why is there this amazing painting of her? Okay, well, um, she was um, in a very unique position in society. Her grandfather signed the Declaration of Independence for Georgia. So George Walton Sr. was the one who did that. Her father was George Walton Jr. He was also involved in politics. He was the only governor of West Florida before it became, Florida became a state. There was a West and East Florida. And then when Florida became a state, he was the first secretary for the state of Florida. So he was uh, very prominent in um, local politics as well. Um, he eventually moved to Mobile and he was uh, mayor of Mobile in 1837. So she kind of has a history of people who are fairly influential as well. Yes. Yes, definitely. Well, um, she was born in Augusta, Georgia, and um, she already had, for her time, a pretty impressive background. I mean, she was born with a very good connection with a lot of different people. And so, um, so whenever her father got offered the position in Florida, he packed up the family in Augusta, Georgia, and moved everybody to Florida, Pensacola, Florida, which was the seat of that town at the time of the seat of that, that West Florida. And uh, he uh, was involved with establishing Tallahassee as uh, the capital. He was involved with all of these things. And so she lived in Pensacola. Well, he was not the nicest person and he wasn't the most honorable man. And so, um, and the painting, his painting is actually at, at um, Oakley as well. But he he was not the best of people. He got into a duel. Um, he stole almost ten thousand dollars from the state of Florida. Um, he had went to court to pay it back. His mama ended up his mother mama. I'm southern. His his mama ended up paying um, his fees so that he didn't go to jail, uh, surrendering land. And so Octavia's mother didn't want that influence to kind of rub off on her daughter. So her only option was to leave town and they would do these short flights of introduction of Octavia to society in the area. Now down here, society was in pockets. So you'd have a pocket of society here in Mobile. You'd have a pocket along the Mississippi River. You'd have pockets along the Alabama River. And then they all roads led back up north to like New York and Philadelphia and places like that. So whenever Octavia was getting about 23 years old, she was, um, it was time to really officially introduce her to society. So her mom and with her brother as an escort went to Washington DC, just outside of Virginia where Sully was still painting and still practicing. This is after he's painted um, Andrew Jackson. This is after he's done um, the painting of uh, the passage of the Delaware with George Washington, like in the center of the painting. That's another popular painting he's done. He's done Thomas Jefferson. So with Octavia's background, it kind of makes sense for her to have an easy access to Thomas Sully, who paints these early American figures. So you said that, you know, she gets introduced into these pockets of society throughout throughout her earlier years. It, it almost sounds like you're being brought into a royal court to, like, 
show yourself to the society of that era. So I'm curious, were they doing it because they wanted her to be a well-known young woman? Were they trying to create a future of influence for her? Or were they doing it more because they wanted her to be a proper lady? So they're like, we're going to do this over time and, and teach you the way. I argue a little bit of both. And then okay. let's throw another category in there. What if you've got a relative like her father, who is not exactly the best person on the planet? What are you going to do to counteract in society your negative asset? You're going to introduce your positive asset and you're going to make the best of your positive asset. Octavia was their positive asset. What made her such a positive asset? Because she was highly intelligent. I mean, she was unusually intelligent. She, her, she was taught at home. I believe her mother and her grandmother were educated in schools up north. And so when they came to Pensacola, Florida, there were no schools. So they taught her and her brother at home. She could speak five languages. She was very prolific. She was very, very smart, very sharp. Um, got along with everybody. Uh, Pensacola had by this time a military base there that Hamilton had said we need to have um, a, you know, a base down in this area to protect our shores. And so all these military personnel are coming down there. And so they're meeting the governor, the secretary for the state of Florida, and Octavia's there. Well, she's winning their hearts. They're offering to drink wine out of her slipper. I mean, this is the kind of stuff at a very young age. So this is even before she was the painting. This is whenever she's uh, 16, 17, 18 years old. So they're introducing her to society. She's already getting offers of marriage. She's already got people interested in her, but she doesn't accept any of them. She's very smart. She's like, okay, I'm going to wait and make my choice. <laughs> Especially back then. <laughs> oh, yeah. She, well, she had the ability to do it. Not everybody had the pedigree that she had. Not everybody had a grandfather who signed the Declaration of Independence, had a father in a prominent position like, like that, had the funds and the availability to travel. Not everybody had that luxury. So she was a rare person who had the luxury, but she didn't waste it. She was already aware of her standing, don't you think, Mary? Yeah, I definitely agree. She was very strategic in all of her decisions. Um, there's a quote that you have in your book, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but she says something along the lines of, in one of her journals, about how she feels her intelligence is just being wasted. Uh -huh. And I feel like it's so very opposite. She knew exactly how smart she was and exactly how to play every situation she was in. And uh -huh. her delayed marriage, I think, is one of the best examples of that. She knew that she could wait. And I think she waited just as long as she could, mm -hmm. married at just the right time to maximize her appeal and her social standings while still marrying at appropriate age. Yeah, she was 26 before she How married. How old was she in the painting? Um, in the painting, she's 23. Okay, so she gets married when she's 26. And then what does her life look like? Oh, she got to choose her husband, Dr. Henry S. LaVert, here in Mobile, Alabama. And he, she picked well, we'll put it that way. Um, while her dad might not have been the most upstanding character, Henry was a kind man. He treated her well. He, her life didn't change that much. She was still the belle of the South. She traveled extensively. Paula can tell you better, but she like went off and still became a prominent writer. She mm -hmm. traveled in Europe and stole everybody's heart over there. Mm -hmm. 
her life didn't become the traditional Southern life of, okay, now I have kids and I live at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whenever, um, whenever she, um, like whenever she was pregnant, she was pregnant five times, but she had five children, only two lived to adulthood. Every time that she was pregnant, she didn't waste the time. Like she had to be, you know, she couldn't go anywhere and travel like she normally liked to do. So instead she would develop her mind. There was a case where she translated um, literature, like a, I think one of the three Musketeer series books, she translated it from English to French and French. To, I mean, she translated things to different languages to, to build those skills up. So, and there's an example of that in one of her What terms. would you say in her life, in your opinion, are some of her biggest achievements? Souvenirs of Travel is her book. And um, there is a original first edition at Oakley. And people can see all of these items. Oakley, by the way, has the best and most exhaustive collection of Octavia Walton Levert artifacts. She's a very underrated woman, but they've got a good collection and it's growing and developing. Um, but they have a great collection there of artifacts for people to do research. That's one of the things. She's a very underrated woman for her time, and nobody today really knows who she is. But she was a person who reinvented herself constantly. But Souvenirs of Travel, because she had never written a book before, so she said, I'm going to write a book. So she did. Um, and it's available online. You can get it online. First editions are expensive. I can't, I don't own a first edition. I'm looking for one. So Oakley has one, which is awesome. And then um, the other things that she did, accomplishments, this is not an accomplishment per se, but um, Edgar Allan Poe dedicated a poem to her. I call that an accomplishment. Do you guys want to hear it? I found the poem and there's a little bit of controversy actually behind the poem. So I wanted to read you guys the poem and then kind of tell you just a quick little bit about that controversy. So on May 1st, 1827, allegedly in Baltimore, Edgar Allan Poe wrote this poem in the album of Octavia Walton. When wit and wine and friends have met, and laughter crowns the festive hour, in vain I struggle to forget, still does my heart confess thy power. And fondly turn to thee, but Octavia do not strive to rob, my heart of all that soothes its pain, the mournful hope that every throb will make it break for thee. Oh, okay, so super sweet, right? But it appears that Edgar Allan Poe changed some of the words and made an already existing poem be about Octavia. So there was a Dutch researcher, Ton Farfane, and he identified that the original stanzas for that poem possibly were written by Horace Smith, because in any of the documents that they can find, it was originally only signed with an H. It wasn't signed by Edgar Allan Poe. So it appears that this song, it was actually a song, they found, they found sheet music for this song. It was printed in Baltimore in 1826. So they have the previous stanzas and the songs and they know that it wasn't written necessarily by Edgar Allan Poe but it does appear that in order to woo Miss Octavia he changed the lyrics and it was likely that it was kind of a really well-known popular song at the time so she probably already knew but it was still sweet nonetheless and this was at a time when Edgar Allan Poe was 18 and Octavia was 17 so I'm sure it was just young love or maybe just Octavia being Miss Octavia and having all of these suitors wishing to impress her. But I just wanted to share that with you guys really quick. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. And then uh, whenever she was younger before the painting, Davy Crockett, is it Davy Crockett? I think it's Davy Crockett. Um, and Sam Houston courted her and Sam Houston, you know, is the, um, the founder of Texas, the first governor, the first governor of Texas. And then of course, you know, Davy Crockett is, but they were all meeting her in Philadelphia. So, and they dedicated, they wrote in her journal. They wrote in her journal? They wrote in her journal. Hmm, don't know if I'd let anybody write in my journal. <laughs> I know. Um, also, Henry Clay discussed politics with her. They were, um, he was like a father figure to her. And so there's letters and correspondence of them back and forth discussing politics of the day. So he would, and he, he talked to her like an equal. He didn't talk fluff. He talked about actual political things and actual debating and her opinion about different things. I, I was looking at the website for the book and there was something about her being the first overseas representative. She's the first woman to represent the United States outside the country. It was in 1855 and it's in Souvenirs of Travel. She um, represented the United States at the Paris World Exposition. So tell us just a little bit more about your book and if, if people want to read it, where can they find it? Okay, the book is called Such a Woman, The Life of Madame Octavia Walton Levert. The website is suchawomanbook.com. And the reason why it's titled Such a Woman is that Washington Irving says such a woman exists but once in an empire. And you know who Washington Irving is, Rumpelstiltskin. He wrote those books. Well, they actually were close friends. And um, they met, okay, that's, this is one of the cool stories. They met on a carriage ride a long time ago to get to up north. You had to take a, a boat up to a certain point in the Alabama River. And then you had to catch a carriage because the boat couldn't go any further up. So they would catch a carriage there. Well, Washington Irving and her ended up in the same carriage. When they were riding together in the carriage, they hit it off. And the story of it's in the book. So if you want to know the documented documented story of how they interacted, which is really cool, um, and it helped develop her fame, she knows. Mary's like, yeah, it really helped get that going. Then it's in the book. and um, But they ended up traveling together um, up north, and, uh, and they corresponded and hung out with each other for the rest of their lives. Wow. That's really cool. Well... Mary and Paula, thank you two so much for being on my podcast, for reaching out. This is probably the first time that someone's ever actually reached out to me to be put on the podcast, so that was very exciting. So thank you guys, and thanks for teaching us all about the historic Oakley House Museum and Man in the Brown Hat and Miss Octavia. Thank you guys so much. All right. Thank you so much. And here is the reading. I'm also not going to put the end music at the very end because I feel like that would be disrespectful to the story, and I'm just going to lead off with that. The Africans were placed in two long rows, the women on one side and the men on the other, the buyer standing between and carefully examining them, even looking at their teeth. Those selected would be put to one side, and when the purchaser was ready to depart, he would make his ownership known to them by waving his hand around the group selected, then bringing it to his breast. The Tarkers could not understand these transactions. They only knew that their numbers were gradually growing less. Day after day, they saw some of their kinsmen or comrades led away to what fate they knew not. Some were sold and taken to Selma. Of their march through the woods, one pathetic and picturesque incident has come to me. As they marched through the strange land, tired, dejected, friendless, knowing not where they were going or what would be their destiny, 
A circus, moving from place to place, chanced to pass along the country road. To avoid danger or suspicion, the Africans were concealed behind the bushes with their backs to the passing show. As it passed, one of the elephants trumpeted. Joy transformed the Tarkers, spread over their features, and ran through their limbs. To them, the sound was a cry from home, and as with one voice, gesticulating, tears streaming from their eyes, they shouted, Home, home, elephant, elephant.